It is so great to be back with you today, Cornerstone. I love Prescott. I love coming here, and it's just exciting for me. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 21. We have a lot of ground to cover, so here we go. Get ready. But here's the thing. Are you ready for this week? Right? This is a big week. This is the week where America decides. This is the week where you decide. And really, it's a big decision, right? Because it's really asked the question, what kind of uh, society do you want to live in? What kind of person do you want to, to, to be? What kind of future do you want to leave for your children? And I think that this decision, whatever you decide, actually really reveals a lot about your heart. And so, to me, there's only one clear choice, and it's never been more important than now. So despite what they say about tax-exempt status and churches and all that stuff, I don't care about any of that. I'm going to tell you what side I think you need to fall on, because I think it's very clear in the Bible. So here we go, and it's actually what our big idea is for the day. So I'm just going to come right out and say it, and that's this. The real choice in 2020 is between living under the oppression of rules-driven religion or the freedom of grace-driven eternal life. Those are the two choices before us today. So there you go. Now I know what you're thinking. You thought I was going to tell you who to vote for in the election, didn't you? I had you for a moment. But we're not going to concern ourselves with that right now. You know why? Because we have 23 other hours of the day, of today, to figure that out. We're going to depart from that a little bit and talk about something that I believe is way more consequential. Because if you get this decision right, your heart will enlarge in terms of its capacity to love and to understand and to grow. You will capture the essence of eternal life. And as you go through your life, not just here on earth, but all the way into eternity in heaven, you'll never stop expanding. You'll never stop having layers of dimensionality just open up for you, things you never thought were possible. Your life will truly be eternal and ever expanding. But if you get this wrong and you miss it, the opposite effect will happen and your heart will contract. It will grow whole, cold and hard. And it will continue to, to uh, shrivel up all throughout the, the, the course of your life here and all the way into eternity, even in hell. And so the stakes are really high, which is why I strongly commend Pastor Scott for walking through the Sermon on the Mount, especially in these very unique and challenging times that we're in. There's really, I believe, no part of the Bible more appropriate than now. And so we're going to see in our passage today that Jesus presents a very clear choice for how we live. And it's either going to be what we call rules-driven religion or grace-driven eternal life. And the contrast is going to be very quickly understood as we go through this passage, because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to start off by saying, you have heard that it was said, and then he's going to give this, this um, what really amounts to a, a lifeless, anemic, and dry, and crusty rule. 
that had been perverted by the, the, the Pharisees, by the teachers of the law, that maybe had its origins in the Old Testament law, but it had been twisted. And he's going to start with that and say, you've heard this said. And then he's going to say, but I say to you, and he's going to give an, another way. And that's the signal of the difference between rules-driven religion and grace-driven eternal life. And so, as we start off, I want you to ask yourself this question, because we're going to look at a lot of things that Jesus says, and they're going to hit you in the gut. They hit me in the gut, hard. And the question I want to ask you right now as we start is, do I merely believe in Jesus, or do I believe Jesus? In other words, do I merely believe in him? Like, okay, I believe he exists and he, was, he died on the cross for my sins and, and, and all that stuff, and that's, and that's good. But do I only believe that or do I actually believe Jesus? So that when he says these things, I take them as actually true, as opposed to, yeah, you know, that was fine for another time. So let's dive right into this and let's look at our choices very clearly. So the first thing he says in verse. 21 is here's the here's that that key line you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment now right there we get a little clue of what rules driven religion does because what the pharisees had done is they had twisted this and what rules driven religion does is it the first thing it does is it cheapens god's law it cheapens god i'll tell you why because it is the law, like you shall not murder, right? But they had taken it to mean, or to put an addition, an addendum on it to say that if you, you know, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be uh, held liable to judgment. Well, what that phrase actually meant was human judgment. So, hey, the idea was don't murder anybody, because if you murder somebody, you might go to jail, Right? So that's a really compelling reason to not murder anybody. And when they did that, they cheapened the law of God because that was not the intent of do not murder. And by the way, I should say that when it says do not murder, that's different than do not kill, okay? Because do not kill has to do with, or the idea of killing has to do with being an agent of the state. If you're a law enforcement officer or a military personnel, sometimes you have to make decisions like that as acting out of the will of an organization or in, in a certain situation. But that's not the same thing as murder, as we'll see in just a second. Because what Jesus says is, you've heard these guys say, you shall not murder or you'll end up going to jail. But look at the next verse, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever ins insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, this is the key one, Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What is he doing there? In other words, the point is, the point of do not murder is, hey, try to go through your life without bludgeoning anyone to death with a shovel, okay? Which really shouldn't be very hard to do. If, if, that's, if that's a difficult one for you, if you're like, I don't know if I can do that, you should probably talk to somebody. That's a problem, okay? But he's saying, no, no, that, that's not the point. The point of the command is that we would look under the hood of our lives and see what is actually going on that would make us want to murder someone in the first place. 
It is that anger and that rage and that contempt that makes us want to look at another human being and say, you stupid, worthless fool. Yeah, I'm not going to murder you maybe, but I wish you were dead. And the truth of the matter is, there is anger, a level of anger that we can experience that is so intense that you may actually say, you know what, if I knew I could get away with it, I probably would murder that person. If I knew I could get away with it. And that kind of heart has no place in the kingdom of God. And in fact, the only place that that kind of heart is destined for, the only place that that it's really appropriate is hell. That's a hard thing. But Jesus says, I got to tell you, if you got anger in your heart against your brother, that's the whole point of the law. But it goes further than that. So he's trying to expose the, 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 the anger inside our hearts, but it actually goes further than that. Because while rules-driven religion cheapens the law down to like, a, well, I didn't technically kill anybody, what grace-driven religion does is it actually fulfills God's law. It fulfills God's law. It, gets, it, it turns the negative into the positive. Here's, here's how we know. Because he says, so, don't, you got to look at your anger. And if you're, if you're, if you're telling someone, you fool, this is a contemptuous phrase. Rather than doing that, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So here's the thing. In other words, he's actually moving from the concept of murder to reconciliation. And he's saying, run to reconciliation. This is one of those moments, do we just simply believe in Jesus or do we believe Jesus? Because he's basically saying, hey, look, if, you, if you're going to worship God and bring a gift and you realize that someone has something against you, your brother, don't even show up to worship. Go fix that first and then come worship. And do we sit, do we really believe that? Or we go, nah, come on. But if you're sitting there right now on your couch, you got your coffee and your little bacon and your little muffins or whatever you're eating there and you're having a good time and you're going, yeah, I'm worshiping God right now. But there's unresolved conflict. God cares more about the unresolved conflict. And I'll tell you why. And this is another component that weaves all the way through all of these commandments or all of these, all these teachings. And that is this, that in all of our behavior, we are to reflect God himself. So the reason that we reconcile with our brother or our sister is not merely so that we could all just kind of have this peaceful society where we hold hands and sing kumbaya around the campfire and everything's great. The reason is because God himself has reconciled with us. And if God can do the hard work of being the one to make the first move, He's the one who sent Jesus. He's the one who extended himself. He's the one who stepped into our world. He's the one that solved that problem. At least if you are a believer and placed your faith in Jesus, he's the one who gets the credit for that. If he's the one that's done that, then why can't you reconcile with those with whom you have a problem with? It's very good, right? So be the one to shoot the first text, make the first phone call, say, hey, 
Can, can we just talk about this? And it's not always going to work out, but you make the effort and it indicates a heart that is living in the freedom of eternal life. And at that point, you're so far away from murder that doesn't, that rule doesn't even matter anymore because that's not your heart. This is why this is so powerful for us. And so this leads me to the second problem with rules-driven religion, and that is this. Rules-driven religion merely meets expectations. In other words, it's not really that hard to accomplish it. Let's look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, what's going on here? Well, getting married and then not committing adultery is great, but that's not that's not really something that you go around and like brag about. Like you wouldn't put that on your job resume, you know? It's like, huh, says here you've never committed adultery. That's right. 20 years I've never had sex with anyone who is not my spouse. It's like, okay, that's fine. But it's like the old Chris Rock line, you know, where he says, people say, I raised my kids. You're supposed to raise your kids. It's like meeting that standard shouldn't be that hard. In other words, especially how they had technically defined it. Because if adultery technically is not, or is, is simply defined as having sex with someone who's not your spouse, like intercourse, and that, that's the line, then anything else, anything goes, right? Because I didn't technically commit adultery. And that's the way that they were living. Well, I didn't technically do that. Well, that's very impressive, right? Not really. Because what does it matter if you didn't technically do that, but your life is filled with pornography or online flirtation or innuendos all the time around the water cooler where there's a heart that's straying every day? So Jesus goes after the issue of lust because that's the thing that causes adultery in the first place. It's wanting something that's off limits to you that you can't have. That, so, what, so here's the thing. Rather than committing, rather than saying, oh, I didn't commit adultery, so therefore I did my job. No, no, Jesus says, I want you to lean into faithfulness. Because if you take out the lust, what's left over is faithfulness. And so you become the kind of person who throws all of your sexual energy and romantic energy and your thoughts and your, your, your ideas and that whole part of your life gets target locked on your spouse. That becomes the person that you throw all of that on. And so in word and in thought, and yeah, it's a battle. In word and in thought, those are the things that you focus on with them. Because here's the thing, committing, everybody knows that you shouldn't cheat on your spouse. But everybody also knows that sometimes you want to. And that is where the problem is. That's where the transformation has to come from. Because it's much harder to do what Jesus says. At the same time, though, grace-driven religion doesn't just meet expectations. It defies them. This is what he says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. So there's a, very, there's a seriousness to this. But the, the point is, what he wants us to do is lean into faithfulness. Lean into not just being someone who, who doesn't technically commit adultery, but who actually, who actually does not go after things that don't belong to me, but goes after that which does belong to me. Because that's what's rare. 
it is so rare when you see a couple who is in love with each other over the long haul. It's so rare when you see that true fidelity and it's clear that that person, that he's a one woman man. You know what I'm saying? That that he he does, he's not going to stray. We don't see that in our society. And it defies expectations. The same thing goes with his teaching on divorce, by the way. Because Jesus says, you know, you guys know that whoever divorces his wife, all you got to do is give, give her a certificate of divorce. And the reason that they would do that, so they'd have divorces that were happening all over the place, just without any reason at all. She could have like burned dinner the night before. He goes, you know what? I'm done with you. Here's a certificate of divorce. And now I'm not guilty. I legally divorced her. Well, in that society, if you were a woman and that happened to you, you had to get remarried or you faced destitution or prostitution. So, so that's why most likely they would probably have to get remarried and find somebody else. And so, so Jesus uh, basically says, he, he talks about this, and he says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. In other words, you, you did not, it's an illegitimate divorce because it was cavalier. And you never spent a second trying to reconcile. You never spent a second saying, how do I become the best husband I can possibly be? You never spent a second thinking, how do I get to know my wife physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to become one flesh? That's the intent of marriage. It's to model God's faithfulness. Not to just be, not to go through and say, well, I did my job. I never cheated. But that's what legalism does. It, it dries everything up and it, it makes everything the lowest common denominator. That's what religion, rules-driven religion, that's what the Pharisees had done. But instead, and some of us, we need, we need to really think about that and say, what's the condition of your marriage? Or not that it always has to be perfect, but is there effort being made? Or is it just like, well, I'm not technically cheating. Where's your heart? heart. Because we are to be people whose hearts reflect the heart of God. Faithful. So that leads me to the next point. Rules-driven religion not only cheapens God's law, meets expectations, but third, it limits my understanding to don't. It's all about do not murder, do not commit adultery, and then, so, you, so you end up just limiting everything. Well, I guess the whole, God will be happy if I don't do these things. So what does he say in verse 33? He brings up another topic. Again, you've heard that it was said, here's the old rule. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now again, this sounds really good, but it's a total perversion of the intent of the law. Because the idea is, and it's not even really what the law says. The, the law is basically don't lie to people, speak truthfully. But they had twisted things where, you know, if you didn't take an oath to God, you didn't really have to follow through on it. So you could swear by the earth or the temple. And there was little ways, it's kind of like having your fingers crossed, you know, like, you know, it's like, I didn't eat the last cookie, you know, but I had my fingers crossed, right? And so you could get out of it. So, you, so what was happening is one, one of the commentators, Martin Lloyd-Jones, talks about this, that the society was getting to the place and how he puts it, it was becoming chaotic because men could not re- rely upon one another's words and statements. 
And if you want to see one of the things that breaks a society down, especially economically when, and then socially as well, is when people, there's no contract, there's no way to enforce contracts. There's no way that I can trust the word of someone else. There's always like a, a little loophole. And the more we build those into our society, we tear apart the moral fabric. And if that's happening in your life, you're tearing apart the moral fabric of every relationship that you have because when they look you in the eye, they can't trust you because, well, when I said that, I wasn't serious. So what Jesus does instead of that is what is the the next part of grace-driven eternal life. Rather than simply focusing on what you're not supposed to, don't lie if you swear to God, what what it said is this, it expands my vision to do. In other words, what Jesus is going to say in just a moment is, rather than just saying, well, I didn't lie here technically, Jesus is saying, become someone who speaks the truth. Become known for speaking the truth. And this is why he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, um, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, stop the games. Stop the games. Instead, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Dr. Henry Cloud, brilliant Christian psychologist and author, I I think it's the book, Necessary Endings. Fantastic book. And he talks about the difference between hurting someone, and harming someone. And when you speak the truth, you often hurt a person. You hurt their feelings. You know, hey, those of you guys who are leading organizations, there's some people that you may have to fire because they're not doing a good job. Or you give them a poor evaluation. Or you're honest about the condition that something's in. And it's going to hurt the feeling. You say, hey, you know what? You got a really bad haircut. I, I could lie to you, but I don't know how to say it. I, I be, you know, we speak the truth in love, but it's really bad. Now that might hurt them because it hurts their feelings. It hurts their ego and everything else, but it doesn't harm them. It doesn't actually damage them. So remember that. When you speak the truth, yeah, you might hurt people, but you're never going to harm them. However, if you don't speak the truth, you may not hurt them in the short run. Oh, you look great. That dress, oh, it looks so good on you but you always harm them. You always harm them because you paint a picture of reality that's different than what actually exists. And they go off living in a false world. And you did that. And it's terribly damaging. And again, why do we not do this? Well, because of that reason, but also because our lives are to model and reflect the character of God. And we know that in, in God is truth. There's no lie found in him. That's what the scripture says. God is the author of truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And some of us, see, here's the thing. No one is, this is why no one is born a Christian. No one comes out of the womb automatically a believer. This has to be a place that you come to in your life. There has to be a real conversion that takes place where you move from death to life, where you move from being a a compulsive liar to someone who can finally speak the truth, 
where you move from someone who's intensely angry and bitter all the time to someone who has a gracious heart who runs to conflict and runs to reconciliation to solve it and to make peace because peace has been made with you. That's not something you stumble into. That's a point that involves repentance. And some of us right now, we're not speaking the truth because we're afraid. And the, Christian, Christians can often be, we justify it because, well, we've got to be nice. And we say some of the most vicious and wicked lies in an effort to be nice. And we are reshaping and manipulating reality for the people around us. It's a terrible thing. Be someone, Jesus says, who when you say yes, everybody goes, got it, got it. Don't need a contract. Don't need you to do a pinky promise. Don't need you to swear in your mom's life. I believe you because I know who you are and I know the God you serve. Ah, can you imagine if we had people like that in our society? How much more beautiful it would be. That's why I asked you at the beginning, what kind of society do you want to live in? This transcends politics, folks. This is about a way of life under the kingdom of God. And it's so important. And so, that leads me to the final problem with rules-driven religion. And that is this. It always elevates me. So it cheapens God's law. It meets expectations like, big deal, you didn't bludgeon anybody. It limits my understanding to don't, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and God will love you. And the fourth thing is, is it elevates me. Now look again at verse 43 and more of, of Jesus' teaching. You have heard that it was said, so here's the old rule. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> Would you kind of just laugh at that, right? Is that in the Bible? It's kind of like when it says, God helps those who help themselves. Well, the Bible says God helps those who... It doesn't say that. If you want to actually make that something biblical, it would be God helps those who can't help themselves. Sometimes God helps those who won't help themselves. And he, he picks them up off the floor anyway. But this isn't in the Bible. You've heard it say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Your love your neighbor is, but not hate your enemy. But so if you think about it, when people, and we know people do that, right? It's like, I'm the most kind person in the world. But if you cross me, you will pay. And we go, ooh, this person, like, they're dangerous. You don't want to mess with her because she'll just let you have it, right? Oh. And Jesus is like, no, 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 what is that about? So, instead of that, where that elevates me, grace-driven, and it should be actually grace-driven eternal life, glorifies God. It glorifies God. And here's how. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are you kidding me? It didn't just say that. It did. No, it does. It says it. You love your enemies. Now, this is one of those, do you believe in Jesus or do you believe Jesus? I think a lot of us turn about to go, he didn't mean you actually, he didn't mean like love the people who are going to vote differently on Tuesday. He doesn't actually mean that. He didn't mean love the person that defrauded me out of my, out of a business deal. He didn't mean that person. He doesn't mean the person that broke my heart. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? I'm just telling you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Whoa. So you trying to say that if you don't love your enemies and you can't pray for those who persecute you because you hate them, because you wish they were dead, that you're not going to be a son of the Father who's in heaven? 
But really what it's about is, is it's about mirroring God. And this is where he really drives us. Remember, each point is about mirroring the character of God. He drives it home here. Look at this. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. What does that mean? It means that God himself loves his enemies, which is why you love your enemies. Because God sent rain on the just and the unjust, because the unjust, their crops need to grow too. The unjust need sunshine to warm their faces. And God sent it on them too. Because he loves his enemies. Does he judge them? Yes, he does. There's a whole section for that. But he loves them. And he goes on to say, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles. In other words, big whoop. You love people who love you and you hate people who hate you. Wow. What a moral giant you are. That's what he's trying to say. He says, no, no, no. Be like God. Because God loves his enemies too. Which, by the way, you were one. And he sent rain and he sent sunshine to show you of his love. And he rescued you while we were still what? Friends of God? No, sinners. We had enmity between us and God. And he still loved us. If God loves his enemies, why can't we? This is hard. Because I know what you're feeling right now. You're sitting there on your couch and you're like, change it to CNN or Fox or ESPN or something. Change that. Change the channel. Don't change the channel. Because in here is life. In here is life. See, grace-driven always glorifies God. Grace-driven eternal life always glorifies God. So, what's the goal? Well, let's look at the next verse. The whole goal for you is, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly. And you're going, I knew it. God wants perfection. I can't be perfect. Hang on. That's not what it means. What it means is this, completion. The goal for you is completion. Because the word perfect in the Greek language is the word teleos. It doesn't mean get everything right. It actually means complete. Like it says in James, you must be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All the puzzle pieces are in place in your life. You have reached the place for which God intended you to reach. You have become the person God created you for. It is the journey of becoming like Jesus in every way possible. It is the journey of reflecting the character of God. And if you want to know what eternal life looks like, that's what it looks like. And it's so crazy and radical. And it cuts us up. But this is the time where we respond and we repent. I don't know about you, but this message just dug into me. I got, I got, I, I, during this COVID thing, I wear, I wear a face mask. I get like, I get angry five times as fast. That's just how I am. I just, I, cause I I can't, right? And and everything's frustrating. And I project it on people. And it's a sin. 
It's, it, 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 that, heart, that heart doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. The heart needs to be revolutionized and transformed and converted every day. So what do you need to do? We'll give you a moment to think about that. And as we do, I want to pray for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes wherever you are, in your living room, at somebody else's house, and you're sitting on your, you know, laying in bed with a computer, whatever you're doing. Take a moment, bow your head, and close your eyes. And say, God, you, you spoke through this guy today. It wasn't his words, it was your words. What do you want me to change? What are you digging up that's rotten in my life? God, I want to thank you for each person here. I want to thank you for giving us this. For everybody that's watching, some people watching all over the world. God, do a work right now. We need to have our hearts revolutionized. Some of us have never seen eternal life laid out this way, of a melting of the heart, of a surrender to the new way of living. And if there's anyone watching this who needs to surrender their life to Jesus, right where they are, they would just say, God, I get it. I need you. I, the, the, the wickedness in my heart has been laid bare. And I, I, can't, I can't expect to stand before you and to waltz into heaven. I can't expect to even live another minute with any kind of joy knowing this is what's inside me. God, I need you to take that away. I believe that, that Jesus paid for all of this and I, would like, I want to cast it on him so that I might walk free. Tell him that right now. Become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Become, become a son or a daughter of the Father. No, we'll never be perfect, at least in this life, but we can become complete and really capture the essence of why we were made. And God, for those of us in here who surrendered our life to the authority of Jesus years ago, but to be honest, this, this pandemic, this election, this is so tough and it's stretching us and there's anger, there's unreconciled relationships, there's seething stuff. God, would you do a work in our hearts right now? Would you melt the anger? Would we pray for those who we've had contempt for? Would we see them as you see them? Would we see them as you saw us before you reconciled us? This is serious business, God. And we cast ourselves before you, throwing ourselves at your mercy and knowing that you always, you always forgive, you always heal, you always restore. You were serious in every word that you said. Thank you for sending Jesus to give us the hope that we need. You guys leading us in worship this morning. Thanks, Tim, for your message. Appreciate you being here and filling in for Scott. I said this in the first service. I think he gave you the toughest section in this uh, whole series to, to preach on. You did a great job. We appreciate that. I do want to mention before we get into some next steps and some questions, if you're watching, you can uh, text your question for Tim to this number, 928-288-5490. That's 928-288-5490. And if you submit it, we'll do our best to try to you know, answer it uh, during our time right now. But first, we make it a habit to um, always give, try to give some next steps. You know, we want to apply what we've heard. So do you have any next steps for us this morning? Well, you know, absolutely. And I think, obviously, the... Uh the, the idea would be that 
based upon how God spoke to me, my next step is, and, and I love the fact that Pastor Scott does that. Because I think there's a lot, and and this, as you said, this passage was was full of all kinds of ways that you can apply things. So, for example, uh, I think the obvious one: we're in the middle of an election season right now, and with with COVID, with a lot of the racial uh, unrest and stuff, the societal unrest and the tensions there, there is a huge opportunity to be angry and to lash out, whether it's on social media or just to people in general. And I think that's the thing probably most of us, if we're honest, we need to kind of look at and say, who's really in charge of my life here? I really think we need to understand that. And while we may have passionate feelings about how the country should be run and the direction it should go, and I, I share that. I, I feel very passionately about things myself. But then I also have to remember that I'm a child of the king and my number one job is to reflect him. So what does that look like? I think another one there too, Clovis, is just the idea of looking at our, you know, there's a lot in there about lust and marriage and everything else. And hey, look, none of us are going to be perfect. Lust is going to be a lifelong battle, especially in the society in which we live where things are so available all the time. But if I really thought about what is the condition of my marriage and, and how do I lean towards my spouse and say, I, rather than the, the line being, I didn't cheat, how about the line being, I did everything I could to be faithful, to, to express faithfulness, to express the beauty of, of the oneness, of the one flesh. I think those are some, a few areas that, that probably are going to be key for people. Kind of tying into this one, you just mentioned it, but I mean, you know, you talked about, you know, instead of, or, you know, we have the option maybe of setting up another rule versus getting into the heart of the matter when it comes to divorce, because that's obviously a tough subject in terms of getting to the heart of the matter. You, you Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, I think, yeah, I think that obviously we could have spent the whole sermon talking about that because that's the hot button word is divorce. The main thing I want you to hear all the time is is we we want to cover all this with grace. And, and people have had, you know, things happen in their life tragically and relationships have fallen apart. And, and this is one of those that can cause a lot of guilt. So I don't want there to be guilt because where there is Jesus and forgiveness, there shouldn't be guilt. Again, what, what we have done, though, is we've kind of even cheapened even Jesus' words a little bit to say, well, you know, um, the, only, the only circumstance ever is adultery for divorce. And again, so it's like, well, she cheated or he cheated, so I'm out. You know, I have grounds now. And I think that, again, the idea is we need to be saying, what do we have to build? How do we have to structure and organize our marriage so that divorce just isn't an option? You know, I always, in, I always challenge couples, don't even use the word if you're married. Don't even use that. It's worse than the F word. It's worse than any swear word you could say is that is the D word divorce because that has real uh, ramifications. So how do we work towards, we're, we're not even thinking that direction, you know? But I also think it's important to remember that contextually Jesus was talking about people who who were divorcing at will and thought they were okay. And he's going, you're not respecting at all what God has joined together. And that isn't even on the radar screen. So I think it's important for us to evaluate the seriousness of the commitment that we've made to one another. And if there's an opportunity to reconcile, we should do it. And there certainly are times in, in where there are marriages where there's been, you know, affairs or whatever, but they realize that that was just an, an outgrowth of the underlying cause. 
And the cause was just, was, was again, what we talked about, not really an attention to the marriage. And certainly while, while it's wrong, it's an indicator of a deeper problem. Maybe we need to work on that and we can actually reconcile. And that has happened. So it's hard to talk about that. I want you to know that God is there. God forgives. God restores. That's the key thing in here. So when we're blasting through a lot of content, we have to make sure that we don't have something pop up that could be misunderstood in the process. Well, another one of those um, challenging subjects is the whole issue of anger. You brought it up again here just a minute ago. Um, It just seems like everybody's a little bit angrier these days. I don't know, you know, if it's COVID-related or election-related. Like I said in the first service, I think after Tuesday, at least half the country is going to be angry, (laughs) uh, maybe really angry. And so, you know, how do we be angry and not sin? I mean, how do we keep from you know, crossing the line, you know, because there is a righteous anger. Um, I don't know if you, you know, have any tips on how to keep from crossing the line. Yeah, well, and remember, when it comes to things like vengeance and judgment, God's way better at those things than we are. And that's, those are roles reserved for him. Vengeance is whose? God's, saith the Lord, not, not me. And so when it comes to getting back at people, so if your side loses, and you are you are very angry about that. Um, you might be tempted to say, "I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna spew a whole bunch of." When it begins to be contemptuous at the person, hey, you can be passionate about an issue and want to defend the things that you feel are important in a nation. I I think that's our right. We have we have two thousand years of history since Jesus to get a nation that we feel like is is pretty good, and we we want to continue to to live in that. And I think that's totally appropriate. However, we also live in the kingdom. And when we begin to think and speak and act contemptuously towards another person made in the image of God, and C.S. Lewis talks about this. C.S. Lewis talks about this brilliantly when he says, you never talk to a mere mortal. You're either talking to someone who will end up in hell and be a hideous, horrible creature, or a person, an ordinary person, who if they go to heaven, will be someone so glorious and so brilliant and beautiful, you'd be tempted to worship them if you saw them. There are no mere mortals. And so we really have to be careful before we cavalierly throw out these vitriolic statements against people who disagree and differ with us. Um, I, I think that's how we have to handle it. Have passion for what you believe in and certainly engage in, in debate. But wow, make, be, be very careful because you're treading on holy ground when it comes to how we see other people made in the image of God. I, I just think that that's, that's really the best. And I'm speaking to myself when I say that because I'm right there with you. Well, um, no questions came in, so I just want to give you a chance if you have any final thoughts that you might want to give at all. Yeah, you know what, Clovis? I, I, I want to say this. I said this last time I came here. Please pray for your pastor, and please pray for the pastoral team and the people here. I believe as a district superintendent, I get to go to churches all over the seven states that our district is in, and I can tell you that it is harder to be a senior pastor right now and I think any other time, maybe in American history, at least since maybe the Civil War, because our, your leadership's getting it from all sides. If you don't open the church up, you're bowing to the need of the state. If you do open the church up, you're, uh, you're going to kill grandma. And, and, and right now, and I'll tell you, in, in seminary or pastor training school, there was no class on how to survive a pandemic. So Pastor Scott and Pastor Clovis and the others here, they are writing the, the, the book and building the airplane in the air. So be praying for them and give them grace because guess what? You're not going to like every decision that's made because they don't like every decision that's made because it's just 
really hard. And this is an opportunity for you at Cornerstone to continue to be salt and light and continue to be the church right now, especially as we go into into this week. And remember, God's still on his throne and he's going to do great things. But remember, the most important thing is how we live. Okay? Because how we live is going to be the greatest determining factor of your family and the society, the local community you live in. And I love all the things you guys are doing here to reach out. It's, it's wonderful. You're part of a fantastic church, and it was an absolute privilege to be here. Thanks, Tim. And we appreciate your leadership for the district as well. So we just want to remind you again, two weeks from today, we will be at Mile High Middle School at 9 o'clock in person. Mass not required, but recommended children's ministry happening there and then we will be continuing to stream but the stream of the service will happen at 10 30 and uh and then there'll be live interaction at the end of that so thank you again and uh, we'll be back here normal time this next sunday uh no watch party at rosser next week um, but we'll be at mile high two weeks from today so thank you again and uh, have a great day